Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. We, um, in the next couple or two weeks, this week and next week, are going to just be looking at the cross um, through different, from different perspectives, I suppose. This is something we've been doing um, across the years. I was probably doing it somewhat unintentionally for a while, but then last year um, started to do it a little bit more intentionally, like having a look at how can we keep seeing the cross of Jesus in different ways. I think many of us were probably given a fairly one-dimensional theology of the cross, quite simple and, um, you know, that's good, but the cross is so much more than what probably any of us could know um, and even understand. And so I, you know, as we keep moving forward, I just think, well, let's just keep seeing what we can see as we look at the cross and find, see what we can find in scripture and see how we can imagine it. Not all of what we um, talk about is going to be, for those of you who are theological, we're not always going to be talking atonement theories. So there are specific atonement theories that are attached to the cross that are, you know, prevalent in our history that all the things that we're talking about, they're not specifically atonement theory. Some of them are metaphors, some of them are just ways of looking. Um, but I think each one of them kind of offers us something and it gives us fresh eyes. And um, I have found, um, and I shared this this morning in Morning Church, that the more that I have actually searched out the meaning of the cross, like dug into it, read about it, listened to people talk about it, and in doing so, I've gained knowledge. Like I've gained knowledge of how understanding of the cross. What was God doing? What what was Jesus doing? Like what asking those questions. The more I've done that, I have gained knowledge, but I've I've gained more than that. I've gained a deeper love of God. I've been moved um, towards God in love and wonder through that kind of um, searching out and knowing. And I I feel like in this particular sense, I've Um, understood that those words of Jesus where he says seek and you will find like I have found the goodness of finding through the act of seeking and so I feel like you know let's just keep seeking um, and contemplating the cross and seeing what we can find so I would have shown you this I think it was last year I think it was. I think we, I, I get confused about when we're in lockdown and when, <laughs> when we weren't in lockdown. So tonight we're actually going to be looking at the cross as divine magnet. So the idea of the cross being like a divine magnet. And I'll go on to explain that a little bit. But I should, would have, you might have, if you remember, seen this last year where I was just sort of talking about the idea of like the cross as like a prism through which we can see what God is like and what God... We, was doing like when we look at the cross and we shine the pure light of God on it it refracts into all these different colors like the multitude and so it's not just like a one thing that we can understand but as we look at the cross this is what we're seeing what God is like and we're seeing what God is doing so um, Dan the next one I think this is a, a quote that I love from Hans this is great this guy's got the best name in the world Hans Urs von Balthasar um, I would like a name like that. Um, and he, he has been attributed to saying that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death 
The Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So as we look at the cross in all, all its fullness, all its wonder, all its horror, all, all its loss and all of its gains, we see the clearest revelation of who God is. That's what motivates us as we keep doing it because we just, we just know more about God and when we know more about God, we love more about God because all about God is good. Um, and so here, are, um, the next one just shows a whole bunch of different things. And I, I, I didn't go around to adding some more, but even as I'm, even in the past 12 months as I've been listening and learning, there's been a few more that I could add into there. Um, just different images, different metaphors we pick up from scripture, from um, theologians and church history around how we see the cross. So last year, um, I talked about the cross as cosmic reconciliation, and I talked about the cross as the end of scapegoating. Um, and so this week, I'm going to talk about the cross as divine magnet, and um, the, well... It's not even up there. And the cross is the throne of God. I haven't got that up there. But anyway, next week I'm going to talk about the cross is the throne of God. So we're doing divine magnet. So the, main, the two main places that this idea about the cross being like a divine magnet, the, the two verses where this comes from in particular, is um, John chapter 12 and verses 32 to 33. Jesus is speaking and he says this, And I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. So it's like Jesus is saying basically, when I am lifted up, I will act as a divine magnet that draws all people to myself. So there's this kind of idea that as Jesus is lifted up, and in case we're wondering about what that lifting up is, like is that when Jesus kind of like ascended into heaven? Like Jesus then goes on, or John then goes on to explain that no, they're talk, like Jesus said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So this is about the death of Jesus. This is about the cross. That as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, that word also means exalted. As Jesus is exalted on the cross. So the cross wasn't a debasement for Jesus. It was his glory and exaltation. And that's where next week we'll start talking about the cross as the throne of God because it's actually the place of glory. As Jesus is exalted and lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself, all people. And then in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, and I'm picking this verse out of a longer passage, which you're familiar with and you can go and read, but you know, Paul is writing and he's talking about the work of God on the cross in Christ. And in particular, in verse 15, Paul writes this about the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so there's this idea I have come to understand, like there's a double magnet thing happening on the cross. Like as Jesus is lifted up, all men are drawn to Jesus. As Jesus is lifted up, all power is like latched onto that one focal point in history and Jesus disarms it all. So it's like this kind of dual thing that we, we have going. So I want to talk just a little bit about both of those and, you know, maybe just spark your imagination for, um, for what God is doing and maybe we'll all fall a little bit more in love with Jesus. So I want to start with the idea of the disarming of the powers, the way that the cross was the, the magnetic force that drew 
all of these powers that Paul talks about, authorities and powers, um, to himself and disarms them. And I think one of the best places we see this actually in narrative is from Luke chapter 23. And so I want to read it out. I'm going to read out verses 1 to 18. And as we go through, I want you to just notice all the different groups that Luke is mentioning as being drawn together in the crucifixion of Jesus. So Luke 23 1 to 18 says this. This is about the trial of Jesus. So just prior to this bit, um, Jesus has been arrested and the chief priests and the religious leaders have had done their own little mini trial, but they have no power to condemn anyone. The Romans had to do that. And so they're outraged and shocked at Jesus and so they need to activate the Ro Rome to kill him. Um, and so they take him to Pilate. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of tax to Caesar, lie, and claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied, in true Jesus cryptic nature. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that Jesus, when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Like, not my problem. Then Herod saw Jesus and he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. <laughs> he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently... <laughs> It's another word I can't pronounce. Vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the crowd, the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. And so if you're reading through this narrative, you see almost every power group, every people group, every authority, every representative of anybody who has power, even just down to the ordinary man in the crowd, all revolving their violent energy towards the death of Jesus. It's like he becomes like this focal point for every person's like, you know, I don't even know what the word is. Wrath. Yeah, wrath is a good word. So we have Pilate. He is representative of empire and every political 
power-mongering mechanism that we have in this world. Pilate stands in for all political power, for all empire power, for all the ways that people use political and empire power to dominate and decimate fellow human beings. Pilate represents them. Herod represents everyone who gets into power um, without any kind of legitimacy, but through power grabbing and just doing whatever you can to be in power. Herod had no official claim to the throne. No, he, he, was, he was a puppet and he got there by his own power grabbing. So he represents you know, all of that kind of power in history. The chief priests represent every you know, part of religious power and the way there's religious powers at work that operate in this world. The teachers of the law again represent that. The soldiers in this represent all the ways in which ordinary people can put on violence to do violence to fellow men. That, you know, that kind of that power of violence at work in our world where we murder and we harm and we hurt one another. Like that's, like a soldier is a paid mercenary, paid to do that. Um, then we have the people and the crowd, which is just the mob, the mob mentality of ordinary people who are probably bakers and shoe people and market people and ordinary housekeepers and children and wives and husbands and sheep farmers. Every, all these people are drawn into this saga and they form like this mob mentality where they would rather have Barabbas released, who was a rapist and a murderer, than they would have the son of God, life himself, walking amongst them. And so there's this idea that almost all the powers that operate in this world for evil are like focused onto Jesus. And when you add to that the bits that aren't mentioned in this particular narrative, but the fact that he was betrayed by someone incredibly close to him and then had all his followers and friends abandon him, you also have this picture of that very personal wounding and that very kind of personal kind of evil that we can experience as human beings. And all of these things coalesce onto Jesus and onto his death. And I feel like this is, you get, I get this picture of the cross, you know, as Jesus lifted up and there's this storm of all the powers raging around him. That's probably the best metaphor that I can imagine. Like you imagine the cross and it's just like the dark clouds are looming and all the powers of the world, everything that seeks to dominate through, not through God's way, are just focused on the cross. And it's, like when we see evil at work like that, it's like that kind of evil is greater than the sum of its parts. Like you take any one of them as a part in and of itself and it's sort of like manageable and containable, but you put them all together and you get some kind of mega storm that is happening and it's all focused on killing the Son of God. And so it's like... Whatever the cross is, it acted like a magnet to draw the wrath of the powers onto Jesus. And, you know, Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus made a public spectacle of the powers. And it's like it was so public what was going on with him. All these people baying for his blood and he's lifted up from the earth with all the powers just wanting to kill him. And he makes a public spectacle and triumphs over them through the cross. And I think there is something 
I do not understand about this, and that is good. Um, I've asked several people about, specifically about that Colossians 2.15 verse. Like, I've tried to mechanically nail some theologians, like, explain to me how that happened. Just explain to me how, in Jesus' death, he triumphs, how, how he, like, conquers them, how he makes it. And no one's ever given me a good answer. Maybe none of us really understand. But what I do get is that Jesus' triumph over all of these powers does not come through resistance or violence um, or fighting. His triumph over all these powers of the earth and of the spiritual world, it comes through surrender. He triumphs over them through surrendering to their violence done to him. And somehow as he um, dies with forgiveness on his lips, that's the public spectacle because they are made a laughing stock. What can they do to me? They can kill me. Well, what can I do in my death? I can forgive them. They have no power over Jesus, the Son of God. And so... You know, it's like we, we could say that Jesus as a divine magnet is like kind of like drawing all the evil of the world to himself and like focusing it in one point. Like if you could imagine the poison of the world, all the ways in which sin and brokenness and selfishness have infected and poisoned all people, all history, and Jesus acts like a poison magnet that draws that poison out of the world sucks it into himself and recycles it as mercy. And so the way that Jesus tri triumphs over them is through mercy. He takes in their death and their violence and their greed and their power and he recycles it as life and resurrection. I don't know how that happened, but I do trust that it did somehow. And this, as we're sort of talking about this kind of stuff, we're getting closer to talking about the atonement theory of Christus Victor, which is victorious Christ, which you can get technical about that, but I'm not going to do that. But I just do love the image of Christ on the cross drawing all evil to himself and not like fighting it like he's some mega superhero like power man, but actually dying in it and recycling it as mercy, love and forgiveness. Like there is something very, very powerful about that. So Jesus acts as a magnet for the powers and he acts as a magnet for the people. That John chapter 12 verse, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And I love this idea that the cross is like a wooing of all people. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is wooing all humanity with his kindness, with his grace, with his love, with restoration. Like the worst thing that we could do to the author of life was to kill it. We killed the author of life and he recycles it back to us as grace. Like that's a very powerful, powerful thing that has happened and a powerful image that God, as we're killing him, forgives us. As he is suffering under our judgment and wrath, he just receives 
and pours out mercy. Like this is the power of the cross. This is like the picture of the cross as divine love and mercy and divine kindness. And so it means that all of our sin and brokenness, all of our mess and all of our shame and all of our guilt and all the stuff we have done and all the stuff we haven't done and all the ways we're complicit in those powers in the world, that all is recycled. Like Jesus is lifted up and we just encounter divine love and mercy. We don't have to live under guilt. We don't have to live under shame. We don't have to live under condemnation. We live under the grace and mercy and divine kindness of the cross. Because there is nothing that you can do um, that is worse than killing God. And he just forgives it. And so we all find ourselves forgiven and and drawn into, wooed by this divine love. And I think about Paul's writing in, you know, Romans, like it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, not God's judgment. (laughs) God's judgment has never worked to lead people to repentance. It's his kindness. It's his lifting up in grace and mercy, love poured out for us. That's attractive. Hearing that you're a dirty, rotten sinner that desperately needs... God, like that, that's not as attractive. And so Jesus is divine kindness and divine mercy. And I, okay, and I, it's helped me just like, I'm an imaginative person. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. That's where I'm like, you know, I can look at the cross and see this like storm raging and kind of like somehow understand that Jesus is like, you know. And then I like, you know, when it comes to the idea of like the cross is a divine magnet that's drawing all people to, um, to it, to Jesus. I just, I like to imagine, like I think it was T.S. Eliot that talks about the cross as the still point of a turning world in one of his poems. And so I just, I imaginatively like to think about the cross, Jesus lifted up on the cross as this calm and still point in a turning world where all people and all history finds itself in the orbit of the cross so like all of us and all of history that's been and to come somehow is in orbit around this still point of the cross and it's all being drawn up in divine embrace like it's all being magnetized by the divine love and mercy and goodness of Jesus on the cross and so it's like people might be far away in behaviour, in words, in thoughts from the cross, but they're not outside of the divine magnetic power. They're just finding their way in. There might be events in history that we just don't really know how to reconcile with the cross. Well, maybe they're just on some outer orbit, but I am trusting that as Jesus remains the still point of a turning world, as he remains lifted up, as he continues to draw all people to himself, he acts as a a divine magnet that all people and all history will one day find itself all in all. God is all in all and it will all come up into Christ, that it will all be drawn up, that Jesus is wooing us all to the cross. And I think this idea of the divine magnet and us all finding ourselves being wooed towards this cross makes a fair bit of sense of some other New Testament verses that we find where Paul, Paul's writing and he's talking about um, 
things that relate to this. And I've, um, in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2 and 13 to 18 says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like, that's the divine magnet. From far away brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so it's these beautiful verses of like, peace to those who are far away. You're going to, peace to those who are near. Come near to oneness in Christ. It's all being drawn and wooed into God. And in um, Colossians 3, verse 11, Paul's again talking about those who are in Christ. And he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And we get this picture that as Christ is lifted up from the earth and he begins to draw all humanity to himself, What happens in that process is all divisions, all dividing walls of hostility, all judgments of you're this and you're that and I'm this and they're that and I'm in and you're out and I'm right and you're wrong, all of that begins to crumble because the closer you get to the cross, there is no room for dividing walls. There is no room for us and them. There is only one humanity being drawn up into the life of Christ. And so it, that's where we're getting these pictures in the New Testament. Like there is no, you can't just be like male and female, slave and free, Jew or Gentile. They're categories that they were using back then to distinguish groups of people. We could, you know, distinguish people based on their race, based on their skin colour, based on their economic status, based on their sexual status, based on their marital status, based on their bank account, based on anything. And it all crumbles in the light of the cross because as Jesus is lifted up and draws all people to himself, all the dividing walls of hostility come away. And we're all one at the foot of the cross, being drawn up into the divine embrace. No us and them, no near and far, because it's peace to all. Peace to those who are near, peace to those who are far. Because this divine magnet is going to draw us all up in his embrace. Because that's the power of the cross. And I love that. I love that picture that God is always at work in our hearts. As we draw nearer to the cross, as we're wooed closer to the cross, all those dividing walls of hostility begin to shed. And so I think one of the challenges for us is if you were to ask yourself, how easily do you label other people? How easily do you distinguish between yourself and others? How much 
us and them do you do? How much judgment making do you do? How much group sorting do you do? Because I think the closer we are to the cross, the closer we are to the divine kindness and mercy of God, the less that has any place in our life. Not because we've tried to get rid of it, but because Christ has sucked it out of us because it's poison. There is no us and them. There is only peace to all. And so I recognise in my life that there are times when maybe I feel like I'm closer to the orbit of the cross and other times I have to recognise that I'm still very judgmental and maybe find myself on an outer orbit. I think one of the questions I used to ask myself about this, and it's, you know, it's a good question, is, you know, that Jesus often gave us this picture of heaven as a divine banquet, you know, a wedding feast, a massive party. Lots of his parables were all like this. He's giving us image of how good being with God is going to be like. And I used to ask myself, okay, if heaven is a divine party, a great wedding feast, who would I be really upset with if God put me next to them? You know, on the na- in the name, like the name tables, like you get to, um, I, like, again, I'm imaginative, I get to heaven and I'm looking down the list, the table list, you know, at a wedding, and then I see that Jesus has seated me next to that person. You know, who is your that person? Who would you be annoyed with being sat next to in the party of heaven? If you've got a list at all, the cross still has some divine magnetic work to do in your life. And that's okay because it's divine kindness and mercy. And maybe divine kindness and mercy would mean God wouldn't sit you next to that person. But I, I don't know. But I do, that's a good heart check for me because it's like, oh, don't, not that one. They're annoying. Like if I have that reaction in my heart, I just know that the cross has a little bit more work to do in my life. So I just... I have found this idea of this divine magnetic power of the cross, both in wooing all history and humanity to the embrace of God, as well as drawing all the evil power of this world into one place and forgiving it and proclaiming mercy, and somehow in that conquering it all so that those powers lose their power. I just find... That, for me, is a compelling metaphor of the cross. And so just as we finish up, we're going to come and um, take communion together. I do ask myself, like, what does all of this mean? This is a great metaphor. Is it just to have a happy picture in your head so that when you close your eyes and sing, thank you for the cross, you can picture a giant magnet in the sky? Like, is that the point of it? And maybe it is. Maybe it's enough as a compelling image that helps us know the character of God, to see that God wants all people drawn to him. Maybe it helps us to know that even though we might see certain people in our lives who look very far from God, we can trust that that it's the work of the divine magnet to draw them in and that there is no one beyond the reach of God's saving embrace. Um, But I have found this verse, this saying of Jesus in John chapter 6, really helpful in situations like this. And um, in, this, in this passage, John chapter 6, it's a long chapter and Jesus is having a massive argument with the religious people. And so I'm, I am literally pulling this verse out of it. But I remember when I was, a few years ago when I was reading through John, this, just, this verse was just like something I'd never seen before. And um, 
Jesus in reply to the religious people as they're asking like, what work do we need to do to be saved? What are the works we need to do to be saved? And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And I, I think when I, when I read that, I felt like it was the most profound and simple definition of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow the way of God? What, is it, what does it boil down to? To simply believe in the one that, that God sent. To believe in Jesus. Can I explain to you the mechanisms of how the divine magnet works? No. Do I even know what I'm talking about? Not a lot of the time. Do I trust? There is something about this that's true. Yeah, I do. The work of us is to trust in Jesus, to put our confidence in him, that when we're faced with discouragement, we, we put our confidence in the wooing power of God. When we're faced with the powers that rage in our world and as the way they affect our lives, what do we do? We don't despair. We put our trust that Jesus has done something definitive about them. And while we may not understand how the heck that's outworking right now, our work is simply to believe. And I love, in the King James, they write, the work um, of God is this, to believe on the one he sent. And I love the sound of that better than to believe in. Like, because when I, when I say the words believe on, I get this picture of just like, I don't know how this works, but I'm going to believe on Jesus. Like, that's all I've, all I've got. I'm going to believe on him. I'm going to fall on him. He is going to be my confidence. Like, I can't explain it to you. I don't know why or what or how, but I'm going to just lean on Jesus and know that the work of God is simply to trust in him. Trust that he is the divine magnet. Trust that he is wooing all people to him. Trust that all history will be reconciled into him. Trust that all powers have been conquered. And when it feels too much, I just believe on him. Like, I can do that. I can do that. And so I just think, you know, there's this sense of the goodness of God through all this. That when we look at the cross, we see the character of God. Not as one who judges humanity but as one who loves it so much he's just going to woo it all to him. All those who are near, all those who are far. He's going to suck the poison out of this world and recycle it as mercy and woo us all into God. I find immense comfort in that. And so how about um, to finish, we'll bring the kids down. Go get the kids. But maybe while we're waiting for the chaos to arrive... Um, maybe let's just have a moment of, of quiet where um, I've talked a lot. Maybe you just could close your eyes and sit here in the presence of God's people and in the presence of God and just let your heart ask this Jesus on the cross. Jesus, what would you want to say to me in all of this?
as I stand, as we stand at the foot of the cross and we gaze up at this, this love, we gaze up at this man who gave himself for us, this divine magnet of mercy and kindness. Jesus, what, what do you want us to know? What do you want to say to us tonight? Jesus, we thank you for your love. We acknowledge, Jesus, that sometimes we find ourselves near to the still point of your cross. And sometimes we recognize that there are parts of our lives or our hearts that are far away from your love and your mercy. But God, we just trust that you'll continually draw us near. And Jesus, I pray that as we are wooed closer to your goodness, to your love, that you will continue to bring down every dividing wall of hostility between us and others, whether those dividing walls exist in our neighbourhoods or our nations, in our workplaces, whether they're in our families, or whether or not they're just simply in our own hearts where we have dividing walls of hostility in our hearts. Lord, would you just let them all crumble? And we just thank you for your goodness and your love. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.